Let's go ahead and have a seat. Uh, we are an hour and five minutes behind. What time does this normally start? Nine? Yeah, no, let's, uh, let's go. Let's rock and roll. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time together. We ask that you would uh, open your word to us, that you would cause us to see your glory and your grace in this topic of justification. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, uh, so uh, eventually I'll have a completed outline. I'm kind of putting this together as we go. Um, and then I'll have handouts after the whole thing's done. Okay. That didn't go over well. Just as a recap real quick, justification, an act of God's free grace, wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So we're going to look at some of these things. Um, what justification is not, again, just as a reminder, uh, it is not a change of nature or condition. When God justifies you in Christ, He does not make you something different than you are. He declares you to be something different than you are. The declaration is different than the nature or the state of it. Does that make sense? And, and even in our judicial system, if you think about it, People are not determined to be guilty or innocent. They're determined to be guilty or not guilty, right? So we are, we are declared to be not guilty, not innocent, because we're not, nobody's innocent. But we're, we are declared to be not guilty in Christ. Um, also, it's interesting that the, the judicial system, ours particularly, has something called double jeopardy, uh, where the citizen cannot be charged for the same crime twice. Okay, this makes it incredibly hard for DAs and prosecutors and so forth to find, uh, to take somebody that they know is guilty and find additional information and then bring them to the trials and so forth, because once they've been tried on X, um, X uh, evidence, then they can't be retried for that if a jury's found them uh, not guilty. Apply that to theology. We have been declared not guilty by God in Christ. What, what a wonderful thing that we can't be charged again for any sin that we commit. We do not have the wrath of God upon us. There is no double jeopardy. If Christ has taken our punishment, and He's taken all of our punishment, there's nothing you can do from here moving forward or looking back you have ever done that is not covered. Now, Paul says, Romans 6, right? And all these are kind of Roman referentials here. But Romans 6, what is it, how does that start off? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Meganoita is the Greek. That is the strongest declaration of no that is possible in the Greek. May God forbid, some translations uh, put it. Meganoita, may it never be. We should never take our lives, take our actions, our behaviors, our attitudes, and somehow excuse our sin away. Because the flip side of that is that if we do that, 
we actually may be putting ourselves into a position of, am I really a believer? You know, am I really a believer because believers are not going to abuse the sacrifice of Christ like that? Okay, and that's the Spirit working in us, and the Spirit, you know, gives us all of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and so forth, right? And that's being worked and wrought in us, uh, not of our own work, not of our own effort. So, uh, it, it's, a, it's an interesting concept. Now, justice, again, uh, this is going to be a fuller, more flushed out uh, outline when I'm done, but um, we're going to come back to this. You see the word justice there. Justice, uh, in the Greek, that's decay. Uh, again, just a hint of what's to come, but we're going to talk about how, what the Greek and the Roman concept of righteousness was. They actually, the Greeks had a god, I think she was a goddess, uh, named Decay. And Decay was the goddess of justice. And, and so we're going to get into that because when Paul talks about this, of course he's speaking about the eternal God who's always existed and how we're justified by faith, but it directly applies to the culture of his day. So it's going to be an interesting, that's down the road a little bit. Judgment here. Now, again, I'm just hitting the, these, these definitions as we making sure these are something that we understand, okay? Judgment, the word there is crisis. What does that sound like? Crisis. We get our word crisis from the Greek word for judgment, krisis, okay? A separating or and then a decision. We, we separate the information. We separate uh, in our minds right from wrong and those kinds of things, and then we make a decision. So a crisis is an opportunity to be decisive and discerning, okay? Uh, and that's where, that's where we get that word. Romans 2.5, it's mentioned, it's used. Uh, as righteous judgment. It's a combination of two words put together, okay? And then also we have the word crema. What does that sound like? Crime. We get our word crime from this word crema, okay? Again, it's part of uh, uh, a judgment thing, but it's a, of a decision passed on the faults of others. Uh, it was used in the Greek culture to refer to social unrest, social chaos, social disruption, okay? So, a crime is just something that is disrupting, uh, some, disrupting uh, the, the, the status quo of, of what's happening, right? And then uh, a judge, krites, uh, what does that sound like? critique, critical, right? A hypocrite. These are, these are all root words that we use today. And just as a side note, 70% of the words that you use come from Latin or Greek, okay, in the English language. So, it's, these are very helpful things to realize. Um, when I, I was teaching, I taught fourth grade in Colorado Springs for five years. And... Um, one of the things, I was going to school at the time, you know, in the, in the seminary and taking some Greek. And when you're, when you're young, you want to teach everything, you know. You don't know how to hone it down. But I um, went to the administration and I said, can I, can I teach Greek and Latin root words? And they're like, well, 
okay, we'll see how it goes. He gave me a trial period. So I taught Greek and Latin, took some vocabulary, and gave it to the students. And I got nothing but complaints for the first couple of weeks. You know, this is crazy. I mean, this is, why are we doing this? So after about a month of this, one of the main parents came to me and said, I just want you to know, I am behind this fully. We were in the store the other day, and we were walking down this down the aisle where the vitamins and so forth were. And, uh, and my son said, look, Mom, vitamins, Vita, life, and bio, life, you know. And so she said, I, that, that did it for me. It's like, you know, if he's understanding these words and, and so forth, uh, I'm all for it. So it, it, it is important, and we do use them. It's important to understand where they come from and how they're used, okay? Um, not every word uh, that we are going to go over will do that. But, uh, but where it, it does apply, uh, I'll bring that out. And then we come to imputation. And remember what imputation was. There were three imputations in Scripture. Uh, what were those? Uh, I'm going to leave that up on the board so you can read it if you'd like. But I, let's try to encourage some. I can talk the whole time. I don't mind. But three imputations, right? Adam's sin to the rest of the world. Okay, we all are sinners because of Adam. If you imagine him in a car and the rest of the world is in a car because that's his car, that's what God's put us in to travel and to, to transport ourselves. And if Adam decides to floor it and go over a cliff, guess what the rest of us are going to be doing? We're going to be going over a cliff. Uh, there's, there's some joke, you guys have probably heard it. Um, you know, I don't want to die uh, by some act of violence or something like that. I'll, I want to die calm and peaceful like my grandfather, not like the passenger screaming going over a cliff, you know, <laughs> as he was driving. Okay. Most of you at home, you guys are, the hour really messed you up, didn't it? Because <laughs> I, I, I told, the, my, Aaron and, and Anna are out of town today, and so these jokes went great with the dogs. And so. the second imputation was, uh, was the sin of God's people. Now, this is important to understand, and this may be a point of, point of uh, conversation here. The second imputation, all men are sinful, but what sins does Christ take upon Himself when He goes to the cross? It's an important conversational thing. It's an important doctrine to discuss, and it's been something throughout history that has gone back and forth. For whom did Christ die? I think I remember uh, last time, you may remember, we put up on the board, Cur uh, Deus Homo. Why the God-man? Why do we need Christ to be both God and man? Right? So, Jesus takes upon Himself the sins of His people. That's it. Okay. So, that's all Scripture tells us. Um, and we can get into what the meaning of the word world is there and, and how it's used and so forth. But I just wanted to point that out. And so, by the way, as we go, uh, I encourage questions after the fact and after the class and so forth. But if there's something you want to throw out and discuss as we go, please, please do that.
And then the third imputation is Christ's righteousness then goes to those for whom he died. It goes to his people. Okay, if it went to everyone, if everyone received the imputation of Christ's righteousness, everyone would be righteous. Okay, God does not apply something to you that does not stick. All right? That is the very basis of our ability to have faith in Him. If He saves, He saves forever. If He loves, He loves forever. Now, here's what's interesting. If He loves you today, guess how long He's loved you? Forever. Eternity past. Right? There was never a time where He did not see you as an object of His affection. But does God have wrath on people? Yes, He does. We have examples in Scripture with Pharaoh and Judas, who was, uh, who was never, uh, he was a son of perdition, right? John 17. So, if Pharaoh was suffering under the wrath of God, if he died in that state, God always had wrath on Pharaoh. God doesn't change. What changes, going back to justification, is our status, Right? So, from our perspective, we go from a state of condemnation to a state of justification, a state of righteousness. Okay? Our condition doesn't change. So, then the question comes up, well, wait a minute. Did God, was I ever under God's wrath? Yes, being under God's wrath is a state of condemnation. Okay? And people who remain in that state suffer His eternal wrath. So, our status has changed in Christ. We're declared righteous, and so therefore, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Does that make sense? Okay. Then we get into the uh, pistis is the Greek word here for faith. It's a conviction based upon hearing. Of course, Scripture tells us in Hebrews uh, 11 that uh, faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. Um, so, we, there's actual evidence. Th- this is something. Each of you in here right now are sitting in a chair. You didn't kick the chair. You didn't check to make sure the screws were, were in and, and fixed. You just sat down and trusted the chair. That's, that's not a salvific faith. That does, it's not going to send you to heaven, that, the fact that you trusted to sit in the chair. But, but it is a, a kind of faith. It is the evidence of, well, I've done this before. I can trust this action of sitting, okay? And so, God has demonstrated Himself. One of the things that's very important to realize is all of the miracles that He did in the Old Testament, He did to establish, not just because of who He is. He is. He's a a God who rules and overrules all of nature, but He also, by doing that, establishes the evidence that we need, that our frail human minds need to trust Him, all right? So, when He parts the Red Sea, and when He does all the miracles, and He sends the plagues, and He provides the manna, and He does the Passover, and He gives them the instructions for the, for the tabernacle, and then for the temple, and you, you have all of these things that, that God does in the Old Testament, all these miraculous things, those go to establish our faith in Him, 
faith. So when Abraham, and we're going to look more at this in detail. This is all a recap up to this point, okay? So when Abraham places his faith in God, it is a conviction based upon hearing. We know initially when God first encounters Abraham, he calls Abraham, Abram at the time, out of the land of Ur. Abram's father was a moon worshiper. Why didn't, if, if God had left Abram where he was, Abram would have continued his life as a moon worshiper. Okay? But God intervened. And so when he heard that call, he left Ur. He came out of Ur, and then God continued to provide. You know, this time next year I will show up and you will have a son. That's a promise. Well, what was the basis of believing that? Well, God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is the foundation for our faith in Him. Okay? And then we come to expiation. These are important concepts. Expiation is the cleansing of sin and the removal of sin's guilt. So here's the thing. One of the things I'm I, I, very frustrated with our psychiatric and psychological status in America how all of these, you know, doctors uh, give, put labels on things. I'm not denying that there are things like anxiety and depression and, and so forth, but MacArthur makes a great point. He, he has a sermon I listened to a couple years ago. MacArthur made a great point. He was talking about people who were demon-possessed. I didn't mean to look at you when I said that. Uh, but he, he was, the sermon was demons and how they work and operate and so forth. And he was talking about demon possession. And he said, you know what the biblical, the scriptural remedy for demon possession is? Repentance. Wow. I mean, that's, the Word of God is sufficient for all of our conditions. It's sufficient. And, and I get there are certain chemical imbalances and there that, that, is, that falls under what James and Luke, Luke was a doctor, what they prescribed. Hey, look, you know, do what you can to solve it uh, medically as well. Uh, but mentally, our status, our, our mental state uh, is by and large answered by Scripture. We're in sin when we don't trust that God has given us the information in His Word to deal with these things. And we can't isolate ourselves either, right? We can't handle these these issues alone we need to we need to work together as a group my, my son just yesterday uh, his car broke down he lives up in Chatsworth I called Andy and the body of Christ here we are we need we can't live in isolation I called Andy he got in touch with Ben or Ben got in touch with him and Andy helped him out and uh, just just a wonderful thing but when we're fellowshipping together like that, when we have that kind of netting, uh, it, it makes things like the, my son would have been depressed if nobody had shown up. He would have been in, in anxious, and, but here, here the body of Christ comes together for those kinds of things. So there's a natural solution that God has given us for this. So you don't have to worry about the sin, the guilt of sin. It's not something that we have to deal with. Uh, cast all your cares upon the Lord. Uh, we're told. My, my uh, burden is light, Jesus tells us. So those are things we need to be actively, consciously doing. When we confess our sin, that's important. We should. But we should also, in that confession, 
place all of our hope in Christ. And I've I've provided some passages here. We're not going to look at these particularly, but they do go to the teaching of expiation, okay? But then there's propitiation. And these are, these are biblical teachings in, you know, in Scripture. Um, but it's the swaging God's wrath and gaining His favor. Like it, can you imagine if, with expiation if you were cleansed of sin but God was still angry? I mean, it doesn't, He hasn't removed... If He never removed the guilt of sin but He wasn't angry, you need both. We need our guilt to be gone and the sin to be gone. We need to be cleansed, and we need to be forgiven. We need to be at peace with God. We need to have a relationship, a fellowship with Christ, right? So both of these are important. But assuaging God's wrath and gaining His favor, um, there are some passages there. The whole burnt offering was, was an incredible thing that God had given uh, to, uh, as an act of this, as a type of what, uh, what that propitiation is. And then you remember, I hope, um, we had on the board, uh, justification is a legal judgment. And that's why we went over the definitions first, right? Judgment, justice, justification, and so forth. Justification is a legal judgment. A legal judgment depends upon justice. We're going to get into that later, too. Justice is discerned by a judge. A judge determines according to the law. And the law demands holiness and righteousness. And in each of these, uh, God is the principal cause. God's the judge. He's the one who determines justice. He is the law. Right? All of those are, are begun and ended by God. Now, we're going to get into, you see the, the next part there, are highlights of justification and redemptive history. Highlights. These are just little snippets. Okay? This is not the whole flow take forever. But this is interesting. And if you have your, some of you may have heard this before. If you have, I don't mean to, I don't mean to bore you. I get excited every time I see this. But here it is, the gospel was made known to the generation from Adam to Noah through the names of Adam's lineage through Seth. So if you go to Genesis 5, you will see the names from Adam to Noah, 14 generations, I believe. Okay, and look at what these mean. Adam means man. His son, Seth, who was the replacement for Abel, who was killed, means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Canaan means sorrow. Mahalalael means blessed God. I would encourage you not to say that too loudly in public. Jared means shall come down. Enoch means teaching. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Lamech means despairing. And Noah means rest or comfort. You put this together. And by the way, the chronology, if you go back and you see the chronology of Adam to Noah and the, the lifespans, Adam was still alive and knew Noah. Okay, so these are these are generations alive at the same time. So if they all had a family reunion, and they lined up from first to last, here's what they would have 
and calling out their names, this is what they would have meant. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort and rest. Okay? Really, really incredible. Now, justification. Do you see justification in this? Absolutely. How is man justified? When man acknowledges his condition and he sees no hope within himself, but he looks to God and knows that God must come down in order to save him from that, that's faith. And that is the basis for being justified. Okay? Uh, and then you could take each one of these names and you could talk about each one, uh, you know, man and so forth. I thought one that was interesting was uh, Enoch, teaching. You know, well, what is teaching? Each one of these are kind of aspects of Christ, the message of the gospel. You know, what did he teach? What's the very next thing? Uh, teaching, his death shall bring comfort. So there's death, sacrifice, substitution in this lineage. I mean, it's all there. Um, all right, any questions about, about that? No? All right, so from the Old Testament, we also see the covering of Adam and Eve. We talked about this last time. You know, they went to, to look uh, to take fig leaves to cover their nakedness, and that didn't work very well. If you cut off a leaf and give it any few hours at all, it's going to start withering and just doesn't do the job, right? But the covering, what did we say was involved in the covering of Adam and Eve? I'm going to stray from the microphone. I've been trying to stay here for the, the recording, but I just can't do it. What did we say was the, were the elements involved with the covering of Adam and Eve? Death. Blood. An animal had to, had to die. These are all things Adam is seeing, experiencing. Sacrifice. Sacrifice, yeah. There was substitution. Should have been Adam, wasn't right? Substitution. What else? Covering? Right? And we know from the, uh, from the commands later in the sacrificial system, what were they commanded to do with the sacrifices that they made? To eat them. Right? So there's sustenance there. There is something that keeps us alive in the death of that thing that should have been me. So there's an exchange of life for death. And, and it's something that you can't deny. We all need to eat. We all need protein and all those other things. I don't, Anna and Aaron aren't here. I don't know what I'm talking about. But we need to eat, right? So these are important concepts when we talk about Adam and Eve. And this began, they were the first man and woman. So we're talking about from the beginning, they knew what it meant to be justified. We talked about also, you remember the cycle, God having, giving man righteousness. When he created Adam, he said, this is good. All of his creation was good. 
And that, that term there, you don't call something that's not righteous good. So by God calling it good, he's saying, this is, this is how I want it. This is righteous. This is good, holy, pure. And then because Adam was created in that way, he has a relationship with God, and that's fellowship. So because of God's righteousness to Adam, Adam's able to have fellowship with God. It's a cycle. Once that's broken, you don't have righteousness or fellowship. And God's not going to break it. He has no purpose, no desire in breaking righteousness and fellowship. That's on us. Right? And even with the Spirit in you, if you're a believer, even with the Holy Spirit in you, you still sin. Right? I still sin. So imagine the generation right after Adam who is sinful without the Spirit or people today without the Spirit. The unbeliever, the average unbeliever, they're going to sin. They're in a state of sin. They're in a state of wrath and condemnation and judgment under God. When we share the gospel, the gospel is all of this. You can easily go to the Old Testament to share the gospel. In fact, we, we do have some, some local, uh, Andy Stanley's one of them. I think he's the guy who started it. As a side note, I'm not very political, so, you know, I appreciate people who don't call out names, but Andy Stanley's a nut. Okay, I mean, he's, he's crazy. He's a heretic. And, and he, he said a few years ago, you know, that we needed to unhitch the Old Testament from the New. That Christianity needed to unhitch the Old Testament. Really? We need to get rid of the gospel so that we can understand the gospel? Jesus, all of the allusions from the New Testament are back to the Old Testament. They didn't have a New Testament at the time of Jesus. So, what are you talking about? Very important, okay? And then the Abrahamic covenant. We talked about Abraham. Genesis 15, where God comes down and he, he tells Abram at the time to cut up these pieces of meat. You remember that? And he lays them out, and they, have, they both have to walk through, but Abram doesn't walk through. It's only God. God comes through, passes through twice as a torch and then as a, as a furnace. So the, the butchered meat is important. And then Mark brought up, where's Mark? Mark brought up last week a very important point. We get to Genesis 17, and we talk about circumcision. And here's how it relates to Christ, okay? Because if sin is passed on, I think this was your point, Mark. If sin is passed on from Adam to his descendants on all men, wouldn't that have hit Christ? Wouldn't Christ have been subject to the sin nature? No. And here's why. He was fully or truly, truly God and truly man. He was truly man because he was born of a woman. And if you go back to Genesis 3.15 and we see the prolegomena, the, the uh, uh, proto-euangelion, which is the first gospel that is given, we see that uh, God puts a curse between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman. I did not do well in biology, but I know this. 
you don't refer to the woman as having seed. That's not biologically accurate. The man has that. So when we talk about the seed of the woman, it's interesting because we're talking about something that's coming from her, but there's no mention of the man involved. Circumcision was put into place because of the uh, association of the sinfulness. That is the organ through which sin is passed, the male reproductive organ. And this is important. When that circumcision takes place, it is the physical acknowledgement that there is filth, that there is an uncleanness. Okay? And so by virtue of the fact that Christ did not have an earthly father, he is biologically, we go beyond biologically, he, he is ceremonially clean. There is no sin that is passed to him from a sinful father. So that sets him apart from the rest of humanity as the only one who came from a woman without an earthly father. That sin is, is bypassed. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, this, this, uh, there's so much more to the... To the um, right of circumcision than what we just read on the surface, okay? We just think, oh, what a weird thing. You may remember in Genesis when Reuben and Simeon and those guys, uh, uh, their sister Dinah was taken by, by the guys over in Shechem, and, and they got the bright idea to go over and, and get her back. And so they go over, and they're all nice to the, to the people in that town and of that region, you know, oh, yeah. You can look. You can have our. You can have our sisters and our daughters. Uh, you know, they, the people of Shechem, the men thought they were just fantastic-looking women. You know, and uh, and so Reuben and Simeon, especially, they're like, yeah, you can, you, you can, you can intermarry with us. That's no problem. But you have to be circumcised. They're like, okay, sure, we'll we'll do that. So the whole, all the men of Shechem were circumcised, and on day three, you can't do anything. Okay, day three, it's just you can't move. And that's when Reuben and Simeon, they knew this. That's when they went in and just killed all the men of Shechem, right? So circumcision, we read stories like that, and we're like, oh, man, I'm a circumcision. Okay, that's kind of a weird thing for God. No, it, it goes to the very heart of who Christ was going to be. The, these rites are put in place. Uh, not just for the moment. They're put in place because of what it shows and reveals about who Jesus Christ is. Okay? And then we have the offering of Isaac. Uh, the offering of Isaac is, uh, is something that says, let's actually go there. James 2.21. My battery's getting low, so I'm going to go to my phone here. Um, James 2.23 
Uh, I'm going to start with um, verse 21 or 20. Uh, Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham, our father, justified by works in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? Okay, wasn't he justified by the works? This is why Martin Luther didn't like the book of James. Because he reads this, and he's like, well, wait a minute, you're not justified by works. Let's understand this. Verse 21. Uh, sorry, verse 22. You see that faith was active together with his works. Faith was made complete. And the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Okay? So you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, we have five cries. If you were plopped in 1506 in Europe, guess what you're going to be hearing in Reformed circles, in churches, Calvin and Luther? And so, guess what you're going to be hearing? Five cries of the Reformation. One of those... was sola scriptura, okay? The Bible alone, not the church. Church doesn't tell me what the Bible means. The Bible tells me what the Bible means, and the church is not an equivalent authority. Scripture alone, okay? Sola by grace alone. It's God's grace. That's what saves me. It's not, not me trying to earn or gain favor. Sola fide. By faith alone. Okay? Solus Christus. Faith in what? Christ alone. Right? And all of this is to the glory of God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. Okay? So those are the five solas. It was, it was in opposition to what the Catholic Church stood for, which was none of these things. Right? And the Reformers were like, well, no, no, no. Uh, this is uh, uh, the Word of God alone is our authority. And it's by grace through faith in Christ to the glory of God that we believe these things. Okay? So, the reason I put this up is because the Reformers understood, with a few exceptions. Again, Luther had a problem with James. He, he didn't want it to be in the, in the canon initially. Later, toward the end of his life, he did. But the issue is this. You claim to have faith. You claim to believe. Okay. Let me see. Show me. Faith, we're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Bless you. Okay. We're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Works are the outworking of faith. 
all right? The, so you can't, look, if you're alive, you're gonna, when a baby is born, it cries. The crying is an outworking of the life that is there. And then as they learn to grow and read and run and play and discipline their bodies, those are all works, but the life came first. Their birth came first. So it's an important concept to understand that faith is given after regeneration. It goes to the order of salutis that we talked about, the order of salvation. Faith comes after. It's subsequent to regeneration. This is where uh, some of our friends have it backwards. They actually believe, no, 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 you have to exercise faith in God and then when you do that, God gives you a new birth. God responds to that faith, and He, he, he makes you reborn in, by the Spirit. No. The Holy Spirit put that faith in you, and He didn't put that faith in you to do nothing with it. God's Word goes out, and it comes back. It doesn't come back void. It accomplishes its purpose. Okay, we see that throughout Scripture. So, when that faith is put in you, boom. You have the faith. Now what? Yeah. Uh, how would you describe the level of your operation in the time of the Yeah. Same. Yep. Sorry? Not indwelling? I, I, I believe he did. I believe he did. And the reason I believe he did, uh, I got a paper at home, 12 pages long, I can give that to you. But the reason I believe he did is uh, because of how the Holy Spirit works. We have three persons in the Trinity. And Jeff, who is he? I didn't hear who, who is the he here. Who's the what? Abraham. Abraham. Oh, Abraham. Okay. Yeah. So, so, what is that? Trinity. Okay, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, we have salvation. All right? How we have the Father who does something, the Son who does something, and the Holy Spirit who does something. They're all they're all three one essence. Okay? But they're three persons. Now, first Corinthians. Uh, 12 3. Somebody read that for me real quick. 1 Corinthians 12 3. Bible drill, sword drill. Didn't expect this, did you? 12 3. Nobody can say that Jesus is Lord, and we're talking about in a meaningful way, right? An atheist can come in here, Jesus is Lord, not meaning it can make fun, run out. We're not talking about the actual words. We're talking about the intent and meaning behind it, okay? No one can say Jesus is Lord and meaning unless the Holy Spirit has done it. You remember Peter, when he reveals who Jesus is, uh, Mark uh, 8, Matthew 16, uh, in Matthew's a better account for a fuller account. But in Matthew 16, uh, Jesus says, Who do men say that I am? Now get this. This is you heard this once before, so just but this is super interesting. 
Jesus, of course, he was, he was walking around with his disciples, and they came to a place, uh, Caesarea Philippi. Okay, still there today. They go down kind of into this crag all around, this, this, this bluff, this, they're in this, down, and they're looking all around this cliffs. All around. Now, at the time, there were already pre existing statues that had been carved around in the, in the rock. I'm about to say. Okay, and Jesus has his disciples there. They're looking around. These are all the Greek gods. Not all of them, but they're, these are Greek gods they're looking at, right? And this cliff goes way up high. And it's around almost 360 miles. Jesus says, Who do men say that I am? Oh, you're Elias, or you're, you know, you're one of the prophets. Who do you say that? And then Peter says, oh, Lord, you are the son, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. You, you know, you alone. <laughs> you are the Christ. And Jesus says, Peter, whose name was Petros. Petros, by the way, this means small rock. Okay, maybe something that David picked up to give the Maybe, yeah. But it's a, it's a small one. He says, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this Right? But my Father in heaven has revealed this fact to you that I am the Messiah. And upon this rock, he petra. This is a large rock, boulder size. Okay, upon this rock, I will build my church. Not upon you, Peter. This is what the Catholics did it all along. They said it was Peter that the church was built on. He had the key, 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 first pope. No. no, it's not this rock. It's Petra. Upon this rock, this statement that you made, it only comes from the Father. This fact. Fact that, that, that I am the Messiah, that I am God above all gods, upon top of this rock, over all of this, over all of these gods, I am God. What an exciting, I wish I had been there. <laughs> you know? So, so, flesh and blood cannot reveal this fact to you. The Holy Spirit has to. And when Abraham were told that he was righteous by faith, where did the faith come from? And what was the faith in? When Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were promised, again, Genesis 3.15. This is called the proto-first, euangelion, evangelistic message, first gospel. When, when they sin, and God says, I will send a Savior. I will send someone to fix this. This, this that you can't fix. You've already bought it. You can't, you can't fix it. 
What did they believe? And how did they believe? If we're going to take the Holy Spirit out and say, eh, Old Testament didn't do anything in the lives of people who How did Abraham believe? How did Adam and Eve believe that, yes, someone will come? The whole sacrificial system built around uh, pointing to the Savior to come. I mentioned a, a few weeks ago the ticket idea. You know, the stuff that you're given. You have this as a promise that you are going to Six Flags or to a movie or whatever, whatever right? Travel. Planting. You have this that shows it's going to happen, but it has to happen. Faith in that should be equal to our faith looking back that it didn't happen. But where did the faith come from for them to even have that kind of faith? If it's just human faith, if it's just the Holy Spirit's not working, doesn't really do anything, these people aren't really convicted, it's just the Old Testament, they had better faith than we do? The Holy Spirit was slumbering, they were sleeping, on vacation, this is kind of an Elijah thing now, not common, right? The Holy Spirit was active, and we have things like this in, in the Psalms, right? After David commits uh, adultery with Bathsheba, Psalm 51, what does he say? Take not your Holy Spirit from me, you and me, do not take your Holy Spirit from you. Well, the Holy Spirit And here's what's interesting. We've got to go here. Somebody go to uh, Psalm 51. Look at this. I'll go there. We're talking to this is This is super cool, guys. Psalm 51. I don't know why y'all aren't. Gracious to me, O God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt. Look at this. This is expiation. Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. Expiation. Right? For I am, uh, for I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you alone I have sinned and done this evil. So you are right when you pass sentence. Ooh. Under the condemnation of God. This is unbelievable. It fits right in. And uh, you, for you are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self. What do you require? Integrity. What is that? The law. The law requires that. And you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with this. And I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out my guilt. God, create in me a clean heart. For, uh, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation. How is he able to even enjoy salvation if the Spirit was not created these things in it? Sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. This is the job of the Holy Spirit to do this, but then here's the exciting thing. When God does all this work, I need to be cleansed, I need to be, I need to be cleansed from his guilt, Create a clean heart in me, and guess what? There's a reason why 
It doesn't in there. It's not so you can sleep at night and get up in the morning and repeat. Go to sleep and get up. Go to sleep and get up. It's the next verse. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. I will teach and rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. We have sinned that we need to confess. And when we do, guess what it does? It provides opportunities for abandonment. Why? Not because we're better than they are, but because we're the same as they are. We're a sinner. God saved me. He cleansed me. I'm going to teach you the same thing that you do. Okay? So, the incredible passage, and there's throughout the Old Testament. Uh, we see this kind of work of the Spirit. Yeah. So, who Christ is better than I'm just leaving you so I can see my work? What is that? How is that? When it says Christ says, hey, yep. I'm going to leave you, it's better than I leave you than I see my work. Yeah. What is the difference before then, before then yeah. and after that? So, so, when Christ says that, uh, the Holy Spirit, just like he did with Peter, still reveals information. Right? Divine information to Peter. But the Holy Spirit was not uh, at work in the world at that time. In other words, the goal, the purpose of Christ was isolated, was localized in Israel. Christ is the Messiah. He's showing up. He's establishing his Messiahship. He's establishing his kingdom. He has to go through these things that were already prophesied in the Old Testament for him to do. And so as he's doing that, that's why he tells him once in a while, he'll tell somebody, hey, but don't tell anybody. Don't, don't spread the seed. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. If they did, he wasn't speaking authoritatively, right? As a command. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done that. But, so he, he had, here he is now doing these things. He's training his disciples to go out, and, and, uh, and that's a localized thing. So when he then goes to heaven, he, uh, missions is a bad term. The Holy Spirit then takes that gospel message and accomplishes its purpose. And we see in Acts 1, right? That, that the disciples take the message from Jerusalem and Samaria and the other parts of the earth. We see the gospel just explode with these mission trips by Paul and, and everyone. So it was, it was a purposeful thing that Jesus' ministry remained localized so that the focus would be on him. Okay? That doesn't in any way negate the work of the Holy Spirit uh, or purpose of the Holy Spirit, or the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was there all the time. But we see the Holy Spirit work in the Old Testament throughout. Do you see yeah. David as a, believer, a regenerate believer in Psalm 51? I do. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I, mean, I don't think that's believer, I don't think that's unbeliever language to say creepy right. confession. It's worth pointing out that as we worked our way through Romans, we talked about God continues to judge the believer.
says, you know, may I decrease so that Christ may increase. And when, when are we most decreased? In our moments of confession, in our moments of sin. I'm not saying go out and sin so that you can confess, so that you can be happy about being a little bit. I'm not saying But when we do, because we're going to, when we sin, when we turn, and where, where is that chasm? That chasm is between us and God. His holiness is so unattainable. The way I can even have the hope of having any holiness is if he comes in, not by the law. Some of that with the Holy Spirit in John 16 is what is the Holy Spirit? It's one of the mighty offices to conform us to Christ, but then also he is the, the moving force of the inspiration of Scripture, which is yet to be penned by the very people Jesus is talking directly to. And it's the Holy Spirit that is going to be the instrument, the divine instrument that's going to move them to write that New Testament that we know and now hold, and that all the New Testament saints took to all the world. Right. So well, yeah. another layer of that role of the Holy Spirit that goes beyond the role that we played all the way back to the yeah. first regeneration. And, and not just that, we have, we're told that uh, the men of old, the prophets, they wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, so we have that we also have Hebrews 11, which is basically the hall of faith, right? And it goes through these saints in the Old Testament. You know, Abraham, Noah, Moses, and all these people were, were moved by, by faith. So-and-so did this. By faith they did this. By faith. Where does that faith come from if it's not the gift of God to your It's It's just not, it just doesn't make sense anymore. So, to me. Um, but let, let's... Um, we got to the Passover. We're going to have to remember that because we'll start with the Passover there. Um, how much time do we have? There you go. All right. You're dismissed.